You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Claire Graham. She is an intersex activist who blogs under the name Claire Graham MRKH Voice, and she is coming to us from London, and I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires as usual. Welcome, Claire. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. So I think we should start with the very basics, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what intersex actually means. Mm -hmm. And how would you define intersex? The best way I've found of describing it to people is that it's an umbrella term for a number of different congenital medical conditions that affect reproductive development. That's not an official definition anywhere, but that's really what it is, what it boils down to. Sure. So I, I was reading in your blog and listening to a BBC article, there is a misconception that uh, intersex conditions are much more common than they actually are. Uh, so there's a statistic that is banded around that 1.7% of people have intersex conditions and that it's as common as being a redhead. And I think you, you questioned that in your in your blog. Yeah, it's um, the statistic 1.7% kind of pulled out of thin air a lot of the conditions are so rare that there aren't really numbers for them so it's a Mm. some of it is a guess for how many people there would be with it a lot of cases in the past would have gone unreported or reported as something different so it's really it's really not clear the uh, the redhead comparison makes me laugh because I think that depends where you are in the world how help how helpful that is is that you know in the UK we have a lot of redheads right so people then think there must be as many people with intersex conditions. If you went to, you know, Africa, there's a lot less redheads. So people then would think it's much rarer than it is. But yeah, as I say, it's there's no real official statistics. They've never been actually recorded anywhere to know what the true statistic is for the amount of people born with DSDs. So I think one very, very common misconception that many people in the trans activist community. I wouldn't say the trans community. I don't like um, talking in terms of a community which makes people sound like a monolith. Some people are trans activists and they have specific brands of activism. Some people just happen to be trans and they may or may not agree with those activists who are not, you know, they're elected, who are kind of self-appointed spokespeople. But some trans activists, let's say, I feel muddy the waters by seeming to suggest that intersex is a kind of third sex, that it proves that there are more than two intersex conditions, proves that there are more than two sexes. Yeah, they use it to suggest that maybe we don't really know what male or female is because there are people who have bodies that aren't typically male or female. That's not true. A DSD doesn't mean you're not male or female. It just means that your development wasn't what we would expect 
for a male or for a female. What's what's DSD? Um, DSD is another term for intersex, which some people prefer. Historically, it, it stood for disorders of sex development, but of course, a lot of intersex people don't like that label because disorder implies the need to be fixed. So now many orgs use it, but they, they use it to mean difference of sex development. Could you maybe outline a couple of the most common intersex conditions? There are really only two that I'm more familiar with that I've I've read slightly more detailed accounts of because I've read Alice Drager's uh, book, Galileo's Middle Finger. And also there is a YouTube channel, which I'll link to called uh, My Intersex Girlfriend, um, I think. And the okay. person there has, the person on that channel has has com- complete androgen insensitivity. Yeah. So that's one of the most common ones you'll hear about. Right. Is- complete androgen insensitivity um or case it's sometimes shortened mm. to because obviously it's quite a mouthful to say that um so cases where um someone is genetically male but their body is unable to respond to testosterone so when they're developing in the womb they follow a female developmental pathway so they're born with a vagina they look just like any other girl when they're born they have internal testes because they have the y chromosome these are infertile and as i say they're internal Sometimes they're removed, sometimes not. It's now preferred for them not to be removed, although they produce testosterone that the body can't use. Their body can turn into estrogen. So when they go through puberty, it would mean that they would follow a female puberty. They would have breast development. Their hips would widen, you know, the differences you would expect from female puberty. So that's the case. It's probably one of the more complex ones because it does involve what you would call a mix. So someone who looks female, but their genetics are male. Mm, mm. Most of them aren't as ambiguous as this. So uh, another common one that you'll see people often when they talk about intersex bring up the chromosome variations, which would be something like Kleinfelters, where a man is born with an extra X chromosome. In terms of development, that would mean often they're born with a smaller penis. Um, when they go through puberty, they, they might develop some breast tissue. So their bodies aren't quite as you would expect for a typical male, but they are still unambiguously male they just have the extra x chromosome which makes them slightly different cah is also very commonly cited it is yeah and cah is probably one with the biggest numbers because there's two versions the cah which um is present at birth and then there's late onset cah and cah is where it, it affects males and females although if you're male it wouldn't actually have um a deal of impact because it's about excess testosterone. Mm. So girls with CAH, when they're developing in the womb, they have the extra testosterone means that their genitalia becomes, the word is virilized. So their clitoris is larger. Um, it can appear, it can appear to look like a penis at birth, like a small penis rather than a clitoris. Sometimes their labia is fused. So again, it would look like a scrotal sac rather than a labia. Later on in in life, they're quite likely to have more body hair than other people because of the excess testosterone. That might include facial hair. As I say, this is mainly girls because a, a, a boy with excess testosterone is not considered a problem. Mm. It doesn't have a, the same impact on them. And late onset, it usually becomes evident in puberty. So again, it would be a girl who has more testosterone and her body responds to more testosterone in puberty. So has the extra hair they might have, it might have an impact on their breast development, things like that. 
So would you say it's 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 fair to say that that most intersex people identify very clearly as one sex or the other? That there's uh, there aren't many intersex people who identify as non-binary. Yeah, the, most intersex people would see themselves as the sex they are um, at, with a with a medical condition. There are some. There's a tiny number of intersex people who identify as trans, but it is a tiny number. And and of course there are because there's you know there's all sorts of people identify as trans. Um, but there's no there's nothing to suggest really that intersex people would be more likely to identify as trans than other people. There are cases where um, in the past when we had you know when medicine wasn't advanced as it as it is now people might have been assigned the wrong sex and when they discover later in life what what sex they are they would revert to their proper sex for want of a better word um but even then a lot of those people wouldn't use the word trans to describe themselves because they don't feel that fits in with their experience of what happened to them right they used to they actually used to um test you know, when, when people would go to clinics to transition, they would um, test them for various DSDs and hormones and chromosomes that you you would associate with differences in sex development. And in the end, it was so unfruitful that they stopped doing it because there just isn't the correlation there that they, that they expected. So it's really, I mean, when I was listening to the BBC article that was about what the BBC considered to be, or or this podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes, considered to be an inflation of the statistics of intersex. One condition that they were describing as intersex was, for example, late onset uh, adrenal hyperplasia, where um, later in life women have both women and men have slightly elevated testosterone levels. And that's something completely different from a trans definition of a kind of intersex being something between male and female, adding like adding an additional sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And being a woman with, for example, you know, several of my friends have PCOS, um, polycystic ovary syndrome. So they're not in mm-hmm. any, and no one would consider them to be intersex let alone trans or a third sex or non-binary or something they just have slightly higher testosterone levels and some of them have to have their upper lip waxed because of the you know the because of a gynecological condition a gynecological condition not because of being kind of part part man you know it's quite interesting because now there is because intersex has almost become sort of this mythical entity within trans activism. So there are people um, who want to belong to, I don't know why you would want to, but who, who want to belong to that umbrella. And so there is a move in some political circles to include things like PCOS as a as a, an intersex condition. And there are some people with PCOS who, who claim to be. But intersex orgs are quite against this, not because they want to not help people, but, you know, you can only help so many people and they really want to keep it to those the congenital conditions you know where, where babies might have medical interventions that aren't necessary and that's really what what intersex activism has been about um dealing with not sort of identities and people that want to just 
belong under that umbrella because they have, uh, you know, another an alternative medical condition. Right. Otherwise, where would you draw the line? You would have to test everybody's hormone levels and and give well, you this kind is of. It. <laughs> we'd have to have a, like a, a standard measurement for a penis and if your penis was under that size then you would be intersex you know where like you say where does it end what what becomes acceptable genitalia and what doesn't or what becomes an you know acceptable menstruation or, or what what isn't um it's it's not helpful i don't think it really helps anyone and i don't think people with PCOS really need intersex advocacy i don't know that's not the place for them right right I guess it's possible, and this is less intersex, but trans, I guess it's possible that a woman who has very high, had, for example, especially high testosterone levels from something like PCOS might uh, have, feel more identification with some kind of different gender identity. But this is not about an intersex condition then. That would be that yeah. person, I guess, could theoretically feel more masculine and therefore identify as a trans man or as non-binary or as or or just as very butch or something. I don't know. I guess, I guess that's theoretically possible, but that's then I- identification and how you feel rather than a medical the reality, condition. yeah, yeah. of condition, yeah, yeah. I think. There's, there are, if you get into the rare intersex conditions, there are ones where people um, may feel more confused about whether they are male or female um, and where they fit in society because of how they look. Um, and I, you know, I completely understand that. Um, and like you say, people with uh, women with excess testosterone may feel more comfortable in a in, in a more masculine uh, role or, or group. But it, but it is, it is, it is identity, and I, th- I think to to say it's the medical condition is is tricky because then you're sort of assuming that anyone with PCOS or anyone, you know, with CAH who with the excess testosterone would go down that route, and of course most don't. So mm-hmm. you, the, the individual might have felt like that anyway. You don't, you know, it's yes. difficult to say, isn't it? Yes. So most women who have CAH identifies women feel like women yes yeah yeah someone asked actually and i think this might be related someone from twitter asked what do you think about trans activists using assigned male at birth assigned female at birth to refer to correct so this is uh it's jan jan de beer from twitter asked what's your take on trans activists who use uh amab afab assigned male at birth assigned female at birth to refer to correct assessments of sex at birth that happen to conflict with their gender identity, whereas it's more, is it more useful for intersex people who've actually been assigned the wrong sex at birth? How common is it to be assigned the, the, the quote-unquote wrong sex at birth? It's, it's increasingly rare, thankfully. Mm. Um, also, a sex assignment, usually when what we mean by that is where sex has been um, surgically assigned. And that that doesn't mean what people think it means either. So it would be, let's say you had a boy who was born and he had a severely underdeveloped penis with a hyperspagus, which means the, the opening for the urethra is on the underside of the penis rather than on the end. Mm. Um, 
in those cases, what used to happen, and sadly what still does happen in some places, although, as I say, it's becoming increasingly rare, doctors would decide that the penis would not be useful for sex later in life. And so they would remove the penis and create a vagina and then assign female to that child or the child would be raised as female. I, there's a really good blog about this with someone who was assigned their sex. And as they say, that the, because the, the other term for this is intersex genital mutilation. Mm. And they didn't like that word. You, you know, it comes with a lot of weight, doesn't it, to have, have that word. So assigned sex was their way of telling their story mm. and setting them apart from other people. And, and they were feeling they were having to go back to talk about themselves as being mutilated instead. And they didn't like that. Um, and I can completely see where they where they're coming from because it's such a traumatic thing to happen. And these people are lied to. They don't, you know, they don't find out until they're they're older. So they've had a really traumatic experience, not only in the trauma of surgery as a as a baby, but in the discovery of this later in life and the, and the discovery of the fact that parents have lied to them, doctors have lied to them, and so on. And I think it's so important that they have language to describe that. And the rest of us don't need it. Our sex is observed and it's recorded. We're not assigned anything. No one does anything to us. It's a passive procedure, isn't it, when when our sex is recorded at birth? Right. For people who are assigned, it's a very different thing. Yes, I was reading in your blog a description of best clinical practice in cases of um, ambiguous genitalia uh, at birth. And mm-hmm. I was a little shocked to read, although it says not all um, many clinics now don't do this, I was very little shocked to read phrases like, it may be necessary to restructure, to surgically restructure the genitals at birth or at puberty. Um, yeah, it's... That's, that, um, that seems a little terrifying because uh, you, you're... You're operating on a patient who can't consent. You're cutting away erogenous tissue, uh, potentially. Yeah. And you may be assigning a sex to them with which they later don't identify. Which doesn't suit with them, yeah. Um, So there are some cases. Surgery is a really tricky subject around intersex babies. There are are some surgeries that may need to be performed in, in if a baby's born and their gonads aren't developed properly, so they might have internal t- testes that haven't descended, or they might have a gonad which is a mixture of ovarian and testicular tissue, things like that are really um, can be more prone to cancer later in life. Mm. So sometimes they need to be removed. The genitalia is a um, it's quite a difficult subject. Sometimes it might involved so if a boy is born with hyperspagus where his urethra is not in the place you would expect sometimes the um, urethra opening can be moved to the end of the penis and there's you know some suggestion that this is better done when they're younger rather than when they're older because it's less traumatic when when they're babies um, and and a lot of people would argue that's no different to treating something like um, I, I have a cousin in her her son was born with an extra thumb. Um, he, you know, he was investigated. There was no impact on his health, but they had it removed while he was a baby because later in life, it could have been a more difficult operation for him. He would he would recover quickly, you know, faster as a baby. Mm. So there's so there's some um, room for discussion surrounding where it's 
something that might impair the function mm. of, of the genitalia, where it might be better to operate when they're younger. Then you, then you get into areas like the CAH and the girls who are born with larger clitorises. And in the past, that was reduced. Now that's seen as, you know, obviously not a good idea. As you say, it's an erogenous zone, it's the clitoris, and people were left without, um, not always with the sensation they should have there. That being said, I've read studies where there are girls with CAH who were given surgery as children who wish they hadn't. And I've read um, studies with girls with CAH who weren't given surgery as children and they wish they had been. Mm. So it's a really contentious area and it because it's so political as well and everyone feels like they own a piece of it, it's really difficult to have sensible conversations about what should and shouldn't be happening. I think that at, at puberty is not a bad idea necessarily if the child is able to have some part in that decision-making process. So some boys who don't have their hyperspagias fixed, as they get older and they see all the other boys peeing standing up and they can't do that, eventually that becomes an issue for them. They want to be able to pee standing mm, up like the mm. other boys. So that, so they may decide, uh, you know, at puberty um, when or when they're slightly older children that they would want that fixed. And it, the adults would have to make that decision. But I think the child should be able to be part of that and talk about how they feel about their genitals and and what's happening with them and how they can be used. Right. Yes. I mean, it seems to me that that you should always default to no surgery unless there's some serious threat, because you always have the option of having the surgery later. Later in life. But you don't have the option of undoing a surgery that that you didn't want. Uh, especially yeah, if it's removed, if you remove nerve tissue, this is also why I pose yeah. uh, circumcision, infant circumcision. Yeah, I, I think any child, really, as much as we can not interfere with their genitalia, is the best way to go for mm. them. It's the, it's their genitals; they they should have a right to have a say in that. And there was a very there was there is a famous, I think, quite tragic case of uh, young. A boy who was born also with a atypical, with a micro penis, and he was op- a sex. His sex was assigned. He was surgically assigned to be female and brought up as a girl. He he became trans in later life, quote unquote, and transitioned mm-hmm. back to becoming a a man, and then committed suicide. Uh, is this? I think this might be the, the David Reimer case. Yes, he was at. Actually, he was, um, it was a botched circumcision with him. Oh, if I remember oh rightly. God. Um, okay. So he wasn't born with a, a medical condition. He had a botched circumcision. Right, right. And the, the damage was so severe that um, a doctor called John Money, who actually, he's the guy that invented gender identity. That's, um, he has a lot to do with, with, with transactivism as well. Um, so he decided that what, well, he treated him like a science experiment and decided that they would remove the penis and raise David as a girl. Um, and that his parents would, you know, would lie to him. Um, and as you say, he, he found out later in life what had happened to himself and he, he then went back to live as a, as a boy. There's also suggestions that he was part of the, um, the science experiment that he was sexually abused. It's quite a quite horrific story um and as was his brother who also committed suicide later in life um it's yeah it's incredibly tragic 
But this is where the idea of, of gender identity came from. So the, the, the John Money, the scientists believed that you could, that gender was a, a product of nurture. So when um, a child was born, if you told them they were a boy and you treated them like a boy, they would be a boy. If you told them they were a girl and you treated them like a girl, they would be a girl. And that you could somehow override a person's biology mm. and deceive them. It's a really, really sad case. I was just going to say, unfortunately, um, John, John Money didn't tell people what happened to David for a long mm. time. So this is where the surgery and intersex influence comes from, was people believed that this experiment would be successful and therefore you could operate and raise a child as whichever gender you chose them oh, to be, yeah. which, which which now we know isn't isn't the case but because it became so ingrained that that was how intersex babies treated it you know it's taking a lot to come away from that as well mm. yeah people are not infinitely malleable yeah can i want to just go back a stage because i want to return to this idea of the kind of trans slogan that sex is a spectrum mm-hmm. which i which i can't kind of get my head around because you had some very good and clear definitions and explanations in your blog. How is it that we, how do we define uh, sex? How is sex determined? And yeah, what are the different elements that make a person male or female? So initially, um, if we think about how we develop, because that's how we understand our sex, um, at, at conception, our karyotype, our chromosomes are fixed. Generally speaking, the presence of a Y chromosome means that the person is male. The, the absence of a Y chromosome means the person is female. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I mean, that kind of is the golden rule. The, the difficulties with DSDs, of course, when you get into cases like CASE, um, where we have genetic males who, who look female. So because in that development pathway, there's so many other, to put it down to X and Y is so simple, there's so many other genes and, and hormones that come into play. So, in, you know, for male development, testosterone is hugely important. Um, for female development, um, estrogen obviously is important. And also, to, you know, uh, excess testosterone can affect how the female develops. There, there are cases as well of males who do not have a Y chromosome where that happens, it's the SRY gene generally has translocated, they call it, to the to an X chromosome, which would, uh, the SRY gene is one of the male, main genes behind male development. So, so even though this is an XX individual, they develop as male because they have the other genes necessary for that development. But yeah, usually a Y chromosome is a male. So even if you have someone who is XXXXY, that they would be male. Mm. Mm. And it's also, is the reverse also possible that you could be XY, but that part of the Y chromosome could have broken off, be missing or defective. So you would develop as female. There's a condition called Swire syndrome, which is not dissimilar to case. So you, it's someone with XY chromosomes, but they, they appear female. The difference between the Swire, women with Swire, they also develop the internal organs that you would expect in a female. So they have a fallopian tube, they have uterus, cervix. Um, the only thing they don't have is their 
they're gonads, which are where you would expect ovaries to be, are what we call street gonads. So they're just mounds of tissue. They're not functioning in any way. But that's the nearest you would get to someone who is a pure XY karyotype and almost unambiguously female mm. because of their development. And then you could, there are um, complicated uh, conditions where you have someone who is a mixture of XX and XY. Uh, if you get into a discussion with trans activists, often they'll share, there's a, a, a science paper about a woman and they'll say it's an XY woman who gave birth naturally. And she actually had a mosaic of XY and XX mm. um, chromosomes. And it just means um, it, the fact that she ovulated and gave birth, what that tells us is that her, her reproductive development was, was driven by the XX chromosomes. The XY had no impact on her reproductive development. Um, so even when you've got the mixture of chromosomes going on the mosaics, it's still possible to determine someone's sex based on, then you would start looking at their genitalia, their internal organs, their gonads, and their responses to hormones. Right. So uh, if I'm if I'm interpreting correctly, what you're saying is it's always possible to determine someone's sex. People are yes. always male yes. or female, and there may be uh, atypical roots towards that maleness or femaleness. So, for example, having part of their Y chromosome having broken off and reattached yeah. to an X would be an atypical thing because the the switch the SRY switch is now in an X chromosome and I know there yeah which isn't what we yeah exactly and I, I know there are a couple of other mechanisms similar to that and it's important knowing the sex of someone you know as, as we know for healthcare understanding what sex someone is is incredibly important that it affects their response to different diseases it affects their response to different medications and this is true for people with dsd with intersex conditions as well understanding their sex is going to help them to have better health care even if they might need it slightly more tailored as well because of their individual responses to testosterone or estrogen or, or, or whatever it's still if you have xy chromosomes it's still you're still going to be genetically predisposed to certain things the same as anyone else with an xy chromosome right I mean, there are no, there's no such thing as hermaphrodites in our species. We don't have yeah. self-impregnating. Um, no, um, although some people believe we do, which is amazing. I've, I've had people <laughs> argue with me about this. But that, yeah, never in the history of, of, of humanity has anyone ever been able to produce ovum. Um, over and sperm. It's, it can't happen. Yes, there's a really beautiful uh, poem by Afro Ben, um, which I will link to just for fun, which is called The Fair Clorinda Imagined More Than Woman. But these are these are fantasies. You know, fantasies and hermaphroditism is a, in humans is a fantasy and a legend. Yeah. It used to be used as a clinical term for people with intersex conditions. Mm. But it was mainly used to sort of hide diagnosis from people because it's such a woolly term, you know, there's a hermaphrodite. And then and then it would be split into those pseudo-hermaphrodites and hermaphrodites and male hermaphrodites, female hermaphrodites. Because it is so scientifically inaccurate, there was um, there was a push away from that quite a few years ago. And it's now, um, most intersex people would consider the word hermaphrodite to be a slur because it's, it's inaccurate and quite offensive. Mm, mm. Yeah, it seems to me just so um, uh, 
uh, so weirdly archaic. It's like calling somebody an elf or something. Yeah. I can understand why in the past people might have thought that, you know, very confused by ambiguous genitalia and therefore may, may assume that this can happen. But we should, we're so far beyond that. It's, it's really... <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> so um, could you tell us a little bit about your condition, which I keep... I, I have to look up the order of the letters each time. I'm sorry. <laughs> M-R-K-H. Uh, oh, yes. Maya Rokitansky kusterhauser syndrome. Yeah, well done. I, I can never remember, to be fair, what the letters stand for, which is terrible. But they're just named after the men that mm -hmm. discovered it. It's not a scientific name. Um, it's named after the men that discovered it. And I think part of me is just so offended that my condition is named after men that I can't remember their names. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's weird, isn't it? That yeah. I wouldn't want to have a condition named after me, would you? No. You know, these people with this disease, are they have the Italia disease. That sounds so awful. <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything particularly wrong with your condition, but you know what I mean. No, but it, yeah, it just sounds, it sounds bizarre. Yeah. Um, so the, the, science, the, the scientific or the medical term for my condition is um, malarian agenesis. And what it means is that your malarian structures, so that's your internal female reproductive organs, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, cervix, um, don't develop fully before you're born. So when then and they don't really know why MRKH happens. It's because it's a female reproductive issue. There hasn't been the, you know, the research into it that, that maybe they, they could have been with, with other conditions. All they know is that at some point the, the malaria development gets interrupted. So either you're born with without any of those structures or with severely underdeveloped. So mine is severely underdeveloped. It also means quite often that you have an underdeveloped vagina. Sometimes you'll see it written as no vagina, which really seems to confuse people because I think then they assume you're sort of smooth like Barbie. Right, <laughs> yeah. In that, in that region. I, I can't imagine that either. How do you <laughs> yeah. think it's it? <laughs> yes. it's not that's um the, the the opening is there it just means the vagina doesn't go as far back right. as, as as it would in other women right um mm -hmm. again that that varies uh, with mrkh some people have a fuller vagina than others we have ovaries so i have although i don't have everything in there that the ovaries should be attached to they are in there and they do their job i ovulate i don't menstruate because i don't have the uterus and also I don't have a cervix. So MRKH is really, um, its inclusion in insects has been sort of controversial as well because it is so un unambiguously female. It's just, it's basically a female who did not develop all of the reproductive organs that they should have done. That's my condition. It's one of the easiest to explain, which means I, I very rarely get to because people always want to know about the more exciting ones. <laughs> Mine's just really dull. Right, it's kind of fun to talk about the outliers. Yeah. You know, it means there's something fascinating and exotic about it. I think that's why so many people enjoyed Jeffrey Eugenides' novel, Middlesex, also. Yeah. But, of course, outliers are, by their nature, less common. Yeah. It also means that I didn't hear, when I was a teenager and I didn't get my periods and I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what, because I had to wait a couple of years for um, investigation. Mm. Um, it does mean that, I'd never heard of MRKH. It never, I didn't realise it was possible for someone to be born without 
the the organs that they should have. The only things I had heard of were things like case. So I spent a lot of my teenage years, wor- you know, worried that one day they were going to come back and tell me I've got testicles and I had to be a man. And, you know, mm. it was very confused about what, what that would mean. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, but I equally, I'm as fascinated. The, the more complex the, the DSD, the more fascinated I become by it and how how things are worked out and how we understand it. I completely understand that. Mm. Yeah, I, I was reading your account of when you were in the process of being diagnosed. It was the things that you said about gender identity there were very interesting because you said you didn't really you didn't have a feeling of a gender identity. You were sort of, in a sense, waiting to be told and waiting with trepidation yeah, to discover what sex you were, which is, must have been an extraordinary experience. It's quite bizarre and it's really hard to explain to people because, of course, most people don't ever... Why would you think about it? Mm, mm. Um it's, it's snippets I can remember as well. I don't know how much it did occupy my mind, but I can remember just, I would, you know, be sort of in the shower looking at my body and thinking, you know, what's in there? What's going on with it? What? And then, yeah, just trying to try, like, would I know? If I'm a man, would I know? How, mm. Would I feel differently? And, of course, you don't know because you only feel like you. Mm. So you you have no measure by, by which I had no understanding of myself as male or female. I, I remember, the, the thing I remember distinctly is that the first thing when I was referred to the hospital for investigation, one of the first things they did was a blood test so they could check my karyotype and my hormone levels. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office and him saying, your blood tests have come back normal. And I just so I am a girl then. And he kind of just sort of, yeah. I don't think he realised how momentous what he had told me <laughs> was for me. <laughs> I mean, it, say that he had come back saying that you were, had XY chromosomes. Maybe this is an impossible thought experiment, but you still looked and felt exactly the way that you do, obviously. obviously. Yeah. It's interesting that why would you then need to kind of become a man, as it were? we don't do that like girls with case when they and they they have a similar history to me that you know because they look female at birth so female is written down on their birth certificate and they they believe they are female and then they discover well, again when their periods don't start they're sent for investigation and that's when they discover that they that they're genetic males and of course we don't then turn around to them and say you're a man you must now go and use the male facilities we respect their female assignment and I, I I know a few people with case and I, I know sort of their experience is similar to mine as I say obviously they had a different outcome when they had their blood test mm, mm. but yeah and, and they don't want to be suddenly seen as a man or treated as a man because they still very much are female in the world so Kate case I, just to remind people is the androgen insensitivity Sensitivity, yeah so even if, um, and the, the thing with case women is, even if they decided, even if they found out they were genetic males and, and they decided they wanted to live as a man, because they can't respond to testosterone, they, they couldn't transition either. So they, that female phenotype is, is how they are, and they're received in the world as female. But as, as a teenager, I just didn't know that. So I just assumed that once they discovered you had internal testes and an XY chromosome, you were kicked out of girl club, um, which <laughs> isn't what happens. <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I'm just going to recap in case people get 
confused. So the the androgen insensitivity, you know more about this than than I do. I really only watched this YouTube, little YouTube series by this woman, your intersex girlfriend, I think she calls herself, who is has complete androgen insensitivity. And so she has XY chromosomes, internal testes that are producing testosterone, but her body cannot respond to the testosterone. Uh, and yeah. it's converting that testosterone into estrogen. She looks yeah. completely f- feminine. I have no idea about her genitalia, but I assume in all ways she looks yeah. female or With- close to female. And she's she, in a sense, is more feminine than many women because most women have some testosterone and she doesn't have any. Yeah, this is true. It's quite interesting. In case women have no body hair, mm. they don't sweat. Mm. You know, but this the complete sort of um, inability to respond to testosterone means that they are, yeah, their body is incredibly feminized, even compared yes, they, to they, they sweat, I think, but they don't smell. She doesn't yeah, have body yeah. odor. She says she once yes. wore a T-shirt for two months, um, and nobody noticed. It smelled it's just quite fine. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, because they, they, they often tend to have larger breasts as well. I don't know why that is. Um, mm. Mm. But yeah, they tend to have quite often the way that um, scientific literature in the past has written about intersex bodies, you know, always has a slightly voyeuristic feel. But, but case women are described as, you know, as sort of almost having phenotypically the, the perfect female body mm. to, to look at. And, and you wouldn't know you, you if you encountered someone with case, you, you wouldn't know mm. that, that they were not female. It must be quite hard. I mean, to be fair on more old-fashioned, older historical writers on this topic, it's it must be quite hard to write about this without sounding voyeuristic. I think so, yeah, because you, you are writing about people's genitals and, and their breasts. And, you know, it's um, when I first started, well, writing about this wasn't too hard. When I first started speaking about this, I had to get over a lot of embarrassment because I'm talking about scrotums and penises and vaginas. And, the, you know, they're, they're things we all have. But they're not things that we talk about all the time. I don't know. Um, I don't have a scrotum. <laughs> well, no, it's true, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. <laughs> but, yeah, and it is the language is difficult. And also there was certainly in the Victorian era, you know, the 1800s and into the sort of 20th century, there, there was kind of a, like a freak show fascination with people with intersex conditions. Mm. Um, so photos would be displayed publicly because people would want to come and look because it looks weird and, and we didn't understand. And, you know, people like to to look at these things, don't they, and, and talk about them. So, yeah, it's, I understand why sometimes I read papers and I feel quite awkward at the way things are described, but then that's the language that we had at the time or the way that it was understood at the time. Mm. Thankfully now, um, that, like the photographs don't happen. Um, there's now a lot of ethics around medical photography and right. when it can be taken and, and where it can be shared. Right, yes. Well, yes, that is good. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> um, so how did people understand it in the past, in the 18th, 19th century? It, that's, that's when... Um, our understanding began to develop because we suddenly had 
um, you know, the ability to perform surgery to explore and find out what was happening inside people in a right. way that we hadn't before. Right. So up till then, it was very much uh, conditions like mine would never have been classed as, as intersex in the past because I'm so unambiguously female. Mm. Um, even women with case wouldn't necessarily, they would have just been seen as infertile women because people wouldn't have thought, well, we couldn't have checked for their karyotype right. and they wouldn't have gone looking for the internal gonads. So in the 1800s is when we started to understand about gonads and that some people could have internal testes. And so then they, they began like this search for what they call true sex, which was based on completely on gonads. Then as we came into the 20th century and we began to understand genetics and chromosomes and karyotype, that again pushed us further into, well, it should have pushed us further into understanding intersex bodies more, but instead, unfortunately, we had the blip with, the, you know, where John Money and his surgery and gender identity, which happened sort of the mid-19th century. I was just going to say, just going to say, historically, it's a mess. I think is the best way to describe our understanding, but it, but it comes with the territory of of, of where medicine was. Mm, yes, I I think that um, one thing this debate feeds into a little bit is that, well, it depends on which side of the of who you are talking to, but some people overestimate the ill effects of social conditioning of trying to dictate people's behavior and roles socially, uh, and they underestimate the role of biology. And for some people, it's the other way around. But both are harmful, both are kind of attempt to reduce people to biology and to make everything about biological determinism. Women ought to stay at home, have children, do X and Y, and men ought to do this. That yeah. is obviously harmful to people and restricts their freedoms and underestimates individual variation. But mm. the other the other thing, the idea that everything is socially determined and so people are infinitely influenceable and manipulable into whatever mold you choose to place them in, that is equally harmful. Yeah, it, it has to be. I've always thought that it's a mixture of both, isn't it? You have, of course, your biology does influence to an extent who you are because it's your body. Um, but I don't think that has to, it doesn't limit your ability, your personality or your ability to be interested in things or to have preferences for things. And I, I think, you know, that's, Sometimes that's socially conditioned, isn't it? Sometimes it might be just to do with some innate natural predisposition towards things. And I like going, pushing, saying it's either one or the other, I don't think helps anyone because it, that ignores the complexity of, of being human. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about how trans activism may have impacted intersex people. I'm curious as to what happened to your Twitter account and how you got banned from Twitter. Partly because I've known a lot of people who have got banned from, not a lot, but I've known some people who were banned from Twitter after tussling with certain very authoritarian trans activists. And I wondered if that's what happened to you. Well, my account has never been popular with trans activists. So it's been targeted right from the start. 
the banning thing is quite complicated. So I'll, but I'll try to make it explain it as simple as I can. So I started my Twitter account, MRKH Voice, last year. And I just wrote about, I, I, there'd been a lot of talk about women without wombs and how they felt about this, that and the other. And it was being used by trans activists in the UK to say that women couldn't talk about their reproductive organs because it was offensive to women without wombs. And I just thought, well, I'm a woman without a womb, so I'm going to step into this conversation and tell everyone it's fine. They can talk about their bodies. I, you know, I might not want to hear it, but they, they should be able to. And uh, so, uh, of course, uh, I attracted the attention of trans activists. And eventually that account was, it became, do you know the term shadow banned? Yes, yes. So that, so, uh, but explain um, to the people. So what it meant was um, Twitter, and Twitter say they don't do this, but well, no, at the time they said they didn't do this, but now they, they admit that they do. It means that your account, if it gets reported a lot, it um, gets counted as like a spam account. So it stops showing up when you comment on things. People don't get notifications. If they try to search for you, they might not find you, that kind of thing. So I just thought they weren't going to stop me from talking. So I just started another account and carried on from there. And then that account sustained some quite serious targeted harassment around about Christmas last year. I was receiving very graphic images about being intersex from a trans activist account. It included pictures of pig genitalia, um, really unpleasant things about my own genitalia. Um, So I, and I, I was reporting the account and Twitter wasn't doing anything. They just kept telling me there was no violation. And even after I blocked them, they continued to do it and they would just tag my account. So when people were, even though I couldn't see what they were doing, people would reply and I'd be able to see their replies and I knew it was still happening. What a sick person. Yeah. So I went back to my original account because by then the shadow ban had been lifted. The thing with shadow bans is if you sort of leave your account alone, then it Twitter doesn't pick up on it anymore and it you know gets released from whatever algorithm it's been caught in. And I just went, and it was quite nice because it was like a year since I started that account. So it was quite nice actually to go back to that one anyway, to sort of, you know, celebrate my anniversary as, a, as an intersex voice on Twitter. And then that account, I was involved in a discussion about gender dysphoria and how it wasn't classed as a mental illness anymore. And I asked the question, if it's not a mental illness and it's not an illness of any other part of the body, why are we medicating children? Mm. And my account was banned for asking that question. And so at the same time, it, my other account, the, the one I'd set up after the shadow ban, got banned at the same time as well. Because they just, you know, if you if you have more than two and they ban you from the, the network, they, they delete all of your accounts. Hmm. Interestingly, I, I do have a personal account, which I don't use anymore, that was pre-getting involved in, in the gender debates. Uh, that's never, Twitter didn't ban that. So I don't, I think someone must have, told them that both of the other accounts were mine because they certainly didn't go and investigate to see what accounts were mine. Um, I appealed that decision and Twitter reinstated my account because, you know, I was only asking a question. I actually hadn't said my own opinion. I just asked a question so they couldn't, they couldn't really claim it was abusive. It might have been a question people didn't want to answer, but it was just a question. Mm-hmm. But they didn't reinstate my other account and I never asked for it back. I didn't feel like I needed to. You know, I was quite glad to be rid of that one because of all the horrible stuff that happened there. So I just left it. And then last week I was tweeting from my account and suddenly it just wasn't working anymore. I had no notification from Twitter. So I went to the help desk and sent them an email and they emailed back and just said that we've banned you permanently from the platform for running multiple abuse accounts. Wow. Um, 
abuse accounts. Abuse accounts, yeah. So I try to appeal and I thought, and they still haven't, my, my, my old personal account is still there, it's still up to my phone number, that still hasn't been deleted. So I emailed them and just said, I, you know, I don't understand what accounts are you accusing me of, of, of running? You know, I, I had this one, it got banned, and then you yourselves overturned that. So you can't, you can't mean that because that's not fair. You equally can't mean my personal account because that's still here. So what, what accounts have I supposedly been abusing people from? And I just end up in like an automated system. Where I just kept getting the same email back saying, you've been running multiple abuse accounts. So um, I've now gone through the Better Business Bureau in America because you're more likely to speak to an individual than just to get the automated response. Just to see if I can find out. I know on the day that I got banned, there were quite a few other gender critical accounts that also got banned. And, and what concerns me is also that Twitter have suspended people from their platform believing them that they're me um and they're and they're not and also I, I was never abusive people didn't like what I said but I, I wasn't being abusive I just mm. wasn't towing the same political line as quite aggressive political activists I just wish Twitter would institute freedom of speech on the platform and full stop yeah because it's obvious I I had a good friend who was banned on Twitter for making a snarky joke to another friend of his, you know, someone who he gets on really well with, there was nothing abusive going on there. It was two guys joshing each other. Twitter yeah. decided that was abuse on his part and they permanently banned him. They seem to be really knee-jerky with certain things. And I can't, I mean, like I say, the one that was sending me the graphic images and they were, um, one of the things they said to me was that I had a mutant cunt was one of the tweets they sent to me uh-huh. wow. and, and Twitter <laughs> you know obviously I reported it and Twitter just said there's no right please read it within the context of the conversation there's no violation here <laughs> <laughs> so, you know you think there is no context where that is acceptable to say to anyone um no I I no I really can't I can't think of it <laughs> so, so I really don't understand how they apply and I, and then I think about my account and I never because they are so I know they are so pro the trans activists so I was always careful with pronouns you know I mm. my use of language was always really careful because I never wanted to be done for you know misgendering or just some you know really petty stupid rule that Twitter have developed that I disagree with so even though I disagreed with it I always played within the rules um, and then, yeah, just other accounts are so horrendous and, and they, they seem to get away with it. Well, I'm sorry that your voice isn't there on Twitter anymore, but um, it might be a blessing in disguise <laughs> since Twitter is, tends to be a rather negative force in many people's lives. Um, That's true, yeah. It's nice to have it. And my account was really busy because I became so well known for um writing about intersex stuff so people would get into arguments with trans activists and then they'd tag me in to you know answer a question oh yeah um, and it and I, I I didn't mind doing it but it is quite nice that I I'm not sort of tied to my phone all the time now answering questions about genitals you can have you can have a life now <laughs> yeah um and it so, means as well that I've got my blog and and I can spend more time writing more detailed pieces on there, which mm. are probably more useful to people mm. anyway, and can be shared with a wider audience. Not everyone has Twitter, so. I want to also just direct you towards, um, we have a new platform 
that I'm involved in, which is called Letter. On there, you can, uh, you need to sign up with somebody or write to somebody who's on the platform or find somebody to have a letter exchange with. And there you can, it's like writing letters to each other, except it's in digital form and public. Uh, And then people can can share it on Twitter or Facebook. And once a week we write, once a week I I publish an article about the letter of the week in ARIU magazine, the letter exchange of the week um, and the topics there. So I would encourage you to get involved in that. And we're soon going to have a competition for who can have the most civil exchange on a difficult or controversial topic. And there's going to be some serious prize money. So I would just bear that in mind. Yeah, can you send me the details for that, please? Yes, absolutely, I will. Um, Competition hasn't been launched yet, but I'll send you the details of the letter place. And uh, if you want to write to me, I will certainly respond also. So if you don't have an interlocutor and you just want somebody to bounce ideas off, um, please do write to me. Excellent. I will do. Thank you. You're welcome. So tell me about some of the things that you said that people did not like to hear. <laughs> um, the most, what I can think of like the thing that someone reacted most strongly to uh, there was a trans activist who claimed that there were intersex women who produced sperm. Um, and I, it's always, it's always questions with me. I get sitting so much trouble asking questions. And I just asked them, can you tell me what the condition is where there's a woman that produces sperm? I, I know there isn't one, but, you know, give them a fighting chance, see if they see, or maybe they've heard of something that I hadn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that person was so angry that I'd asked a question that they obviously couldn't answer, that they spent three hours going through my Twitter account, responding with abuse to every tweet that they could find. Oh, from. It was really bizarre. Um, so it's not even, I can't even say that I've ever said anything really controversial. Just, you know, just asking a question like that or even, you know, even saying um, things like, intersex people aren't hermaphrodites produces such a strong reaction from people who people really really depend on it yeah it's quite bizarre it's very um there seems to be a radical confusion the woman who thinks there there are women who can produce sperm that a woman so if you said to me what kind of woman could produce semen then i would think okay this is a we're talking about a male to female transsexual here person. yeah yeah so it's it's somebody who was um biologically male in a male body but who I- identifies as female and female yeah and even, is in the process of transitioning socially yeah. by um surgically or or whatever um because that person about, sorry yeah someone like natalie Wynn contrapoints yes. who is who has had some surgeries and has not has not yet had a gender reassignment surgery, bottom surgery, as they call it. So she obviously produces semen, I guess, probably. Yeah. But she she feels she is a woman, and I'm I'm quite happy and willing to accept that. Mm-hmm. And and she certainly looks like a woman. In fact, she's has a really beautiful, incredibly uh, beautiful face, especially post the facial 
feminization surgery. That was like a, a miracle working surgery. She has this absolutely classically gorgeous uh, woman's face. And, you know, I have no issues with that at all. But there's there seems to be this need to to lie about biology. Yeah, that's the that's the crux of it, isn't it? That it's um, you know, people can male people can can be in the world and be perceived as women and can be treated as women and, and can have female pronouns, but they're still male. Right, and that's okay. Yeah, it should but that and that's what being trans is. So I don't understand why it's an issue to say that because you're not trans unless that's that's the truth of, of who you are. Right. How, how can you be, tr- unless there are two different sexes, how does it make sense to be trans? Because yeah, that's wh- where are people going from together. too? Yeah. 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 It doesn't make sense. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's uh, like an avoidance of stigma, if people feel that if, if, if we all accept this, then it'll be less stigmatizing. But I think it has the opposite because people push back so strongly to it because it's not true. Yeah. I think, well, I think that part of it comes from this kind of tendency to tie ethical attitudes to 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 try to link ethical attitudes to biological facts. I can see that happening on both sides of the debate. So I see people like Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and people like that just saying, you know, really trying to deny rights and respect to trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, because a trans woman, a trans woman, for example, is not biologically female. Ben Shapiro argues that you should use male pronouns to refer to the trans woman. She should have to go and use the male toilets. You know, she should not be taken seriously as a woman. It's very, it's very confrontational and insulting and unnecessary. Yeah, I can. It must cause. I can see that causing pain to to mm. truly dysphoric people as well. Yeah, yeah. And I and I don't think we have to do that. I think it's possible to talk about the issues with trans activism and you know some of, of their beliefs and some of what they want other people to believe without being cruel to people with dysphoria, which must be a really debilitating condition to have. I can't imagine, you know, to, to have that feeling to the point where you would have such serious surgery right and I think also some people want to play with their gender identity without necessarily having dysphoria or surgery or whatever and I also have a an acquaintance I guess I don't I I don't know him that well so uh, a dancer that I know who is biologically female and he has not had any surgery or hormone treatments that I know of, but he binds he binds the breasts, wears male clothes, goes by the name Benjamin, goes by he, dances the male role. I mean, many women lead and dance, so that's not so unusual, but in general, talks of himself and presents himself as a man, and everybody accepts this. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that there's any problem with that. The problem would be if somebody insisted that he therefore produces sperm. Yeah, that he that he is absolutely <laughs> male. Yeah, that's right. And there have been cases, haven't there? I know I read one study. Uh, it was a paper about a trans man who had presented um, in the emergency department of a hospital, 
and they had assumed he was male and had gone on to treat him according to male reference values, which of course caused more problems then. Um, And they ended up quite ill. I I can't remember if it was their liver or their kidneys that, you know, they were talking about maybe having to do a transplant because of of, of sort of the, you know, the the knock-on effects. So it's really important that, that we that we hold on to reality um and and even more so i think for trans people because if you if you present a certain way and then it's assumed that's true and that could be to your detriment it's important that you, that you're able to speak up isn't it and say actually i'm female and that's how i need to be treated right now because that's what my body is going to respond to and that's how it's what it's going to be doing I think there must be a lot of people also in awkward in-between places, especially, I think, especially trans women, that there must be a lot of trans women who are tall and broad-shouldered and just don't pass well as female, but really yeah, I, want to pass. So there must be many awkward... I have um, a few trans friends who are who pass to varying degrees, and I know for them it's a you know, the, the issue of which bathroom to use um, sort of rumbles on. Like, because there comes a point, um, I had one trans friend who I think had been using, or I think they tried to not use public toilets as much as they could, and then they decided one day that because of this debate, and they're, they, you know, they're sort of on the gender-critical side of things, so they, she's a trans woman, and she decided she would use the men's toilet. And, of course, that created confusion then because she's there in a frock and high heels in the men's toilet, and for all she's tall and a, and a little bit broad and and maybe doesn't pass as well as other people equally she looks at a place or she felt she looked at a place in the men's toilet right you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't <laughs> yeah I think you're gonna end up I and I had another trans a friend who's a trans woman who who went in the men's toilet and was asked to leave because they wouldn't believe that she was she was a man mm. <laughs> so it doesn't I it's, it's unrealistic isn't it to think that people who have been using women's toilets for such a long time or men's toilets for such a long time even though they're, they're maybe not biologically male or female that they're going to be able to go in it back to their to the right yeah. sex toilet if you like that's I, I don't think that's realistic either we need to have just unisex toilets with stalls and <laughs> put yeah. an end to this. Yeah. Um, because it's becoming ridiculous. And it's such a sort of small issue that affects so few people, but it's so polarizing and toxic. Yeah, it's it's the one that comes around time and time again. I think there are other things where actually, you know, sport is an obvious one where actually the difference is really important. Mm. To say that, you know, as someone who's male who's playing with their gender could then go and compete against women obviously is going to be unfair. And, and the conversation about that is important. And then also, um, I know there's been this talk about like domestic violence shelters where women might be unsettled by the presence of someone who's male-bodied. Uh, so toilets to me just seem like so far down the order of things that actually really matter in this discussion where people might be put at risk by inclusion of, of someone with a penis um yeah i don't think toilets is the big the big thing but it's, it is the thing that everyone fixates on <laughs> what toilet do you use mm. so uh, um just returning to this gender spectrum thing 
Tell me a bit more about what misunderstandings you've encountered about intersex from trans activists or from anybody. The, the main one is the, the in-between thing, which I think the word intersex doesn't help with. I think that's the picture it paints. And then from mm, there, mm. you get hermaphrodite. Um, there's mm. also, you sometimes see there's um, a, a visual that they share where they where they plot the spectrum. So they sort of, like they have like XX at one end and XY at the other, and then they kind of line up the DSDs in between as though, as though you could somehow journey through them to get from XY to XX, which of course you can't. So the idea that there's... Um, like a sliding scale by which, you know, you, you have something that's a clitoris and then at some point on the sliding scale it becomes a penis, which I think is partly what the spectrum is based on. And again, that's not the case either. Genitalia mm. is male or female, it's a penis or it's a clitoris. It's never, you know, it's never a maybe or an either or. No, it isn't either or. It's never like a maybe or a, or, or a combination of both. Right. And then I think also the assumption like this 1.7% the, the assumption that that means people who are born looking ambiguous, when ambiguity is actually quite rare in intersex cases, to be born with genitalia that's not obvious at birth, within that 1.7% is, is really rare. And kind of what, what they do is they take the most complex condition and then pretend that it's that's what the 1.7% is, whereas the most complex actually occurs in you know something like 0.01% less than that of births so yeah it's all tied up in like this 1.7 percent of people that make a spectrum that that's just the biggest misconception and also that that, that it's something to do with identity mm, mm. and and that and that intersex people want there's an issue with birth certificates with you know non-binary people would like a third gender option on birth certificates and there's some trans activists assume that intersex people also would like this and it's not really something that intersex orgs have ever campaigned for they don't see it as a helpful thing in an ideal world everyone who's intersex would know their sex would know their condition would understand their body so to put an x on their birth certificate really isn't adding to to what what you would want for intersex people Mm. and and also i the idea that we have, I, th- I think it's sort of tied up in identity, but like I, I always just saw myself as a, as a woman who is unable to reproduce. Apart, apart right. from, you know, as a teenager when I, I was confused, obviously I had that time. But once I understood what my condition was, I just considered myself to be a woman that couldn't reproduce. I, I'm a person with a medical condition. And there's a whole discussion around whether or not we should use medical language to describe intersex. And again, actually, if you talk to intersex people, that's not their fight. They're quite comfortable talking about their body in medical terms because that's how they, that's how they've come to know it. Most intersex people aren't politically active in that way. Most don't identify as queer. A lot of intersex people don't like the word queer. You know, they kind of just see themselves as, as regular people, regular men or women, just maybe they, they have infertility or maybe their penis doesn't look quite like everyone else's but they just see we just see ourselves as as regular men or women in the world i i wouldn't identify as as queer i wouldn't i don't understand sort of lgbt inclusion from my point of view 
I, I don't really understand what I'm doing there. I have a medical condition. It's not a sexuality. It's not an identity. Mm. To me, it, it's not even a political thing. It's just a medical condition. And I think that's that's probably the biggest misconception is that most people see themselves that way. We're just a person with a medical condition, a rare medical condition. That might be a good place to end. Unless there's something else you 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 would like to say, which I haven't given you a chance to highlight? No, thank you. I think we've covered loads there. Thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. For being such a good humoured guest. <laughs> and I'm just going to give a quick shout out to my wonderful, wonderful sound engineer, Justin Ward, who is the babeliest babe in Canada. Justin, I love you. I blow some kisses. And um, thank you so much for joining us, Claire. And have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.